Welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello, and welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, episode number 41, released on Wednesday, April 13th, 2016. I'm your host, Ken Gagney. Today, I'm chatting with Adele Lin, directing member of the Code Liberation Foundation. Hello, Adele. Hi, Ken. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. No, thanks for inviting us. It's, uh, this is really great to have a chat with you. Yeah, well, as we just mentioned off the air, the Code Liberation Foundation has been on my list of polygamer guests to get for at least two years ever since before the show even founded, so I'm thrilled to finally have a representative on the show. That's completely my fault that uh, I, it's taken me this long to get you on the show. But for those who are not familiar with the organization, tell us a little bit about what exactly the Code Liberation Foundation is. So maybe I'll, I'll start off with our mission, because what the Code Liberation Foundation is tends to change and morph a little in terms of what the situation is and who members are, but our mission is something that we really stand by. And so the co-liberation, we catalyze the creation of digital games and creative technologies by women, non-binary, femme, and girl-identifying people to diversify STEAM fields. Generally, how that translates is usually we do a series of classes, workshops, game jams, and events that are mostly women-only. Um, some of the nights that we do, like board game nights, those are for all genders and non-gender exclusive but um, in an educational setting, uh, we like to cre um, create a, a women-only safe space to teach women programming and game design and game systems thinking. And is that motivated by traditional programming spaces not necessarily being safe spaces for those who identify as women? Yeah, I mean, so you might have heard um, people talking about this thing called stereotype threat. And um, a lot of the times when women are placed in a room with, with men, there sort of is this kind of like pressure to, you know, seem like the smartest person in the room just because, you know, you get, there's an assumption that women aren't good at math or women aren't good at physics or women can't do programming. And so creating a space where that is taken away or that pressure is taken away is something that we kind of really aim for and allowing people to ask, you know, the so-called stupid questions or, you know, not worrying about how you're going to appear. And we find that when women are put in a room with other women or women identifying people, those they feel a little bit freer to just express whatever they're thinking or feeling. And that also becomes part of the learning process. That pressure to perform when you're the only woman in a room full of men, would you say that pressure is originates both internally and externally? I would say definitely. It definitely does appear across both spaces. And like sort of speaking from personal experience, I you know, I was born in Singapore and I grew up in Malaysia and born into a, a Chinese family. The immediate assumption was, or it was immediate disappointment <laughs> to like my grandparents that, you know, I was a female as opposed to being a male. And traveling through that sort of education system in Asia, you know, there's this assumption that girls just don't do math or science. And most of my friends, and kind of a different system for us, like sort of when you get to, um, it's like ninth grade, you pick whether you go into a science or art stream. And immediately, um, most of my friends moved into the art stream. And I was kind of like one of the few uh, women in my group to move into a science stream. And that was just something that is not expected, or it's almost kind of, yeah, out of the ordinary. 
so from from that age, I already kind of felt that external pressure. Um, and I guess going into the workforce, you know, kind of in different fields, there's different types of pressure and different expectations. And that kind of, I guess that gets inbuilt from you. And that fear kind of goes with you <laughs> through life. And so sometimes it's kind of reinforced by, sometimes it gets reinforced by, you know, like just small things. But because you already, you already have that, you feel like you have that expectation of what people think about you, that tends to also um, amplify, I think. Yeah, and those are some long-standing myths that you have to battle and challenge. 25 years ago, when I was in grade school, I was taught by a teacher in the classroom that boys are better at math and girls are better at arts and reading, for example. Even as recently as 10 years ago, that was a myth put forward by the president of Harvard University, Larry Summers. Yeah. You know, it's, it's impressive that this myth continues to perpetuate itself. Even on this very podcast, I had a guest on the show, and I asked him why there aren't more women in the game development spaces. And he put forth the theory that it's because they're just not interested. He doesn't feel the need to challenge that, which is disappointing. Right. And I think, yeah, I mean, obviously, you'd be more interested in something that you feel that you're going to excel at, because... <laughs> Also, reading a lot of stuff about um, Gen Y and millennials, and and sort of like the expectation, you know, sort of like a, the career expectation curve that you know that we have at this point. And you know, you want to be doing things that you feel like you're going to be excelling at, you're going to be valued. And if if you have this perception that you're not going to be valued, in, like before you even start something, then why go down that road? And so it just becomes this vicious cycle of. That, that just sort of like discourages women from going into traditionally male-dominated fields. And, you know, tech and games just happens to be one of them that we're talking about right now. But it's still something that, you know, even when I talk to people in um, theater and music, and music production, audio engineering, you know, like those myths still, those myths are there, even though, you know, creative arts is something that's been around for a lot longer time. And you see women all across those spaces. But Still, there's all kinds of, um, I guess, um, gender discrimination that's happening. So it's, you know, definitely something I think that comes from early age education, which is so amazing right now that there's so much focus on getting women and minorities into um, technically sort of male, white dominated fields. So I think there's a there's a really great opportunity for us <laughs> in like 20 years time that we're going to see a much more diverse and much more inclusive space. Um, but yeah, I guess we're kind of talking about battling those things like right here and right now, which are, you know, in a way, a product of bad, crazy thinking <laughs> started 20 years ago. Right. We're still early in the podcast and we're sort of jumping right into big topics. I'll scale it back in a minute. But since we're on the topic of these vicious cycles, I'm curious if the games development industry is traditionally male dominated and there is pressure on marginalized voices to be the best that they can be. And those in spaces that are traditionally not very welcoming to those marginalized voices, certainly giving them the skills and the confidence at an early age, like the Code Liberation Foundation does, is essential. But it doesn't necessarily change the market that these young women are entering. So how do you break out of that cycle if you're giving them the skills they need to enter into a workforce that does not want them there? Yeah, that's always like the, the interesting question to ask, right? And to, to think about shifting and you know a lot of times and this is sometimes where i think like men <laughs> really need to step up <laughs> also i because when you talk to a lot of sort of men in these these roles or these industries it's 
And like you said, it's more about their awareness and their perception of what women want to be and where they want to be. Right. So if, if, you know, a CEO of a corporation or, um, you know, of a university program thinks that women aren't interested, then it's not so much about whether they think women are capable. They're just not even thinking about women as um, an audience or a demographic that they should be, you know, in, including. And a lot of that is really sh- about shifting mentality. And um, something interesting that kind of came up at a Intel sponsored hackathon that we had a couple weeks ago we were fortunate enough to speak to one of the Intel fellows, um, Amber Huffman, and she brought up this function, which talks about, you know, function of being successful as a woman in technology is consists of confidence multiplied by competence multiplied by persistence. Um, two of those things that you touched upon. And um, maybe I could talk a little bit about persistence here because that's something that we don't often talk about. We talk about being confident and having the skill set, but then just having that and then going into a place, you're often going to feel rejected. And there's so many stories about women sort of leaving fields because, you know, they, they felt discriminated against or they felt like it wasn't their place. And it really is that persistence that needs to kind of be there in order for women to kind of like hold their ground. So women, the women that have held their ground and who stayed in the industry, you know, for like 20 years or so are now kind of seeing the benefits and are sort of seeing as pioneers in the, um, the industry. And what Co-Liberation hopes to do is to kind of be that, I guess, backbone or space where women can kind of come back to and kind of retool, um, you know, find mentors or even just sort of relate to one another and to fuel up and to be able to go back out into the battlefield and sort of keep going. And I think the other interesting thing that just sort of came to mind, a lot of these men that are in these high power positions, most of them are dads. Most of them will have daughters. <laughs> so in a way, by empowering their daughters, their daughters have the first hand ear of their fathers of their fathers. So by shifting the mindset and empowering their daughters, in a way that's a direct route into shifting the behavior and mindset of, um, you know, men in these positions so that's kind of one thing and I know a lot of men get surprised by their daughters and sort of have you know shifted their thinking because of you know wanting wanting their daughters not to be discriminated against and wanting them to become powerful individuals and sometimes it doesn't make that immediate connect to how they treat their employees but I feel like some that could be like one one way in and also I think sometimes men don't feel they feel like if they speak out for women's rights, they're going to be <laughs> discriminated against as well. And so we also need to be thinking about ways to empower men um, to feel safe to speak about their beliefs and their, you know, to speak out about women's rights. And that's another thing that we often forget to think about. And I think there was a campaign last year or a couple of years ago about men for women. He for she. He for she, yeah. That's right. Yeah, and that and that's still out there. You can find it at heforshe.org. And I, I think it's a great example of the necessity of allyship in this battle because the marginalization of women is literally a man-made problem. Yep. <laughs> you know, and it's not fair to expect those who are being affected by this problem to also be the ones to fix it. Exactly. 
And I mean, obviously, once those barriers are crossed, it just makes for a much more enjoyable space to work together and collaborate. Of course. You know, this is uh, the, the problems that affect women don't affect only women. Feminism is about improving things for everybody. So those are some great examples and some great approaches to addressing these issues. Let's back it up a little bit. How did you get involved in the Code Liberation Foundation? So I, um, I arrived in New York sort of like comes to, yeah, I've only been in New York for maybe a couple of years now, probably. I, I have come here a couple of times before that, but I was living in Australia before this. So I grew up in Asia, went to Australia, got my um, tertiary education there and sort of moved over to um, New York a couple of years ago. And um, I was involved in the independent game scene in Melbourne, Australia, which is like a wonderful place and very creative. It is. I spent a semester yeah. there. Oh, awesome. Uh, which school? Uh, actually, I was working for the uh, Scientific Services Laboratory, part of the Australian Government Analytical Laboratory. Oh, wow. So sort of an internship, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you would have got some great insights. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a great part of the world to be in. I'd love to go back. Yeah, so, um, so kind of being part of that, and then when my friends kind of... So I guess the the games and, and technology scene mostly lives on Twitter and the internet. Um, so in a way, kind of moving countries, sometimes it's, it's easier in these fields because you already know who like who the people are. Um, but yeah, so my friends in, um, in Melbourne kind of knew a lot of people in New York and they were like, oh, you need to this and, and, and do this. And um, the way I kind of met, I met the CLF through, I guess, one of its founders, um, Phoenix Perry. And I... Um, on my second week here, I kind of became part of the Different Games Conference, which is a conference that's happening actually next week, this week, what do you call it? We're on the, the next weekend after this weekend, like um, April. Yes, April 8th to 10th. I went last year. Cool. Yeah, so um, I had applied. So before I came, I had applied to be part of the arcade, and one of the games I made became part of the arcade. So sort of in my second week, I was like right in NYU Magnet and just like right in. The, um, the heart of the marginalized indie game scene, which, which is like a super interesting place to be. And um, I spoke to Phoenix and she played my game and we actually started talking about a collaboration so shortly after. And through that work, I became, um, she encouraged me to come to collaboration classes and kind of did that. And also through our work, it, we just sort of became increasingly um, close. And then when she left, she was she left for Europe, and then now she's in London. Um, we talked about me joining the co-liberation, and um, yeah, it was something I was really excited to do, and so I kind of got voted in, and it was probably maybe about a year ago now. Um, but yeah, I would say that's sort of how I got in, or that's how I got involved. So first as a student, and then more as an organizational member. So are you actually in the classroom working with the young women? Yeah, so um, I teach classes, and also, so we we teach a variety of classes, I'd say. Um, we teach, um, so the way we look at it, we kind of look at the collaboration facilitates the creation of games and artistic projects, and we teach programming as a means to an end to give artists and designers the skills they need to get kind of up and running easily, and we focus on tools that allow for this, sort of like... Um, Processing, P5, Open Frameworks, um, Unity, and um, which which allows for all kinds of different types of um, teachers and I guess game libraries and frameworks to be 
taught in our classes. And so we will we'll te- we teach classes. So you usually have a leader and a TA in a class, and so um, we kind of perform both these roles. And also then we run events on the side. I wouldn't say on the side, but we usually run events to showcase some of the games that people have made or to create new games. And we're also kind of looking at events that are more based around maybe sort of like an arcade structure. And we're hoping to apply for a few grants and to be able to commission um, games to be made. So a lot of this is is an evolutionary process for us as we've recently become a nonprofit, um, only sort of early this year. So we got our 501c3 approved, and that's really exciting for us because that allows uh, for the organization to become sustainable and to, to grow. Excellent. And what sort of classes do you teach? Is it C++, Unity, Maya? So I teach, um, I've been teaching P5, which is a, um, which is from the Processing Foundation, but it's more for the web and it's based on JavaScript. And um, I think that's like a really wonderful tool, especially for prototyping, um, because it's so quick and easy for you to have something that you can demonstrate. And so a lot of times, um, a lot of people that come to our classes have never done programming before. And sometimes it's kind of daunting. We have taught Unity classes, and I think we're going to be teaching some over the summer. Um, But if we're doing one-off classes, Unity becomes a very tricky thing because it's not just a set-up-and-run sort of situation. Um, whereas P5 is something you can kind of like type into a browser and type into your programming um, ID and then uh, you can have that running in a browser and you can send that around and immediately get feedback. And one of the important things about making games, as you know, would be playtesting. And so we're kind of always looking for for ways for um, people to have something made. So we usually want to be able to have girls walk away with a game made by the end of the class, which they can then build upon and, you know, show and get feedback straight away. And um, also another class, which I had fun teaching, was um, a processing class, but used um, using this platform that a friend of mine, Trammell Hudson, had created the hardware for, which we are able to send processing sketches to a vector oscilloscope screen. And uh, that has been super fun. So um, creating sort of like asteroid clones and, and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, we we taught a class around yeah making simple processing games and kind of having that shown on, on like a yeah vintage game screen. So that was fun. So yeah, kind of things like that. If the goal of the CLF is to teach young women to program, why choose the genre of games specifically and not not for example web development? Well, so the collaboration was basically founded by I guess women in the game scene and out of their frustration, sort of at being at um, GDC and you know other. conferences like PAX and sort of finding very few women on panels or talking about their games that that they're making. And I've even had conversations with women gamers who are like, I can't get my girlfriends to play games with me because they're worried that they don't know how to play or they're not going to be good at it. And so we've sort of come from that area of frustration particularly around, and there are a lot of women who do want to work in the games industry. And even though it's, there's not such a big one in New York, um, there is a need to sort of, we found a need to get women just into making games and sort of being able to express their, um, express their own narratives. And games are a great way to express narratives and to, um, to get people to understand, I guess, issues that generally aren't so easily seen 
that's kind of one of the reasons why the to get women into um, the field of games. And I guess there are a lot of organizations out there that teach women to code specifically. And it's not. And so we kind of feel like, so one, wanting to get women the confidence to just be part of games in all kinds of ways. And then two, um, a lot of women that have come into our classes. So like JavaScript is something that you would use for web development. Um, C++ again for, you know, other sorts of programming um, facilities. So it's more about just getting women into comfortable, being comfortable with programming and then being able to take it to that next level or apply for computer science courses or, you know, boot camps and, and stuff like that. <clears throat> and so we definitely don't feel the need to be providers of everything to do with programming, but the idea is just to get women comfortable and confident in programming and then kind of figuring out where they want to be and kind of going into that more in-depth, um, I guess, educational environment um, to, to, be, to, be, um, to become experts in those fields. And I would say the third thing is that games, teaching people to program through games is actually, it makes it very much more approachable because people understand what a game system is. And when you can use those as like starting building blocks, it becomes a lot easier um, to get programming concepts like loops and um, functions when they know, when they can immediately sort of see what they're, what they're making. You know, like if you want to create loops and you teach people to make bullets or, um, you know, things that you pick up and it sort of becomes a more tangible way of explaining programming concepts. And we find that that's kind of worked really well. You had mentioned that they might move on to take computer science classes. About 12 years ago, I spent a couple of years as a high school English teacher. And at this particular school I worked at, which was a charter school for math and science, there was computer science. It was a required class for all the 11th graders to take. I don't know if that's typical of high school education in other parts of the, of the world and, and various uh, districts, but does the Code Liberation Foundation offer a resource that students aren't getting in their own schools? We've actually worked with um, this uh, this initiative called Tech Kids Unlimited uh, for the last couple of years um, teaching high school students programming. And I do know there are sort of other supplemental um, programming classes like Script Ed, and they're also targeted towards high school students. So it kind of, I, I guess I haven't really been part of the high, high school education system here, um, but it seems to me that it probably isn't being taught enough at schools or to, to the level that um, is necessary, which is why all these other groups have, have um, been formed. And um, for our core audience, um, so I guess backtracking a little, we have been, so we were founded out of um, a program at NYU Tandon School of Engineering. The Integrated Digital Media Program has um, been super generous in helping us um, get started. They provide a space for us to teach classes and 30 laptops and um, IT support and getting sort of any program that we need a um, up and running on, on the computers, which allows us to reach a wider audience that maybe don't have laptops or, or things like that. But I guess, um, so, so in a way, our, our audience has always started from that sort of like tertiary and kind of like after work groups. And these are people who are kind of like finding that maybe they're in arts or, you know, they, they, um, want to learn a different type of uh, programming language. And so they've kind of come to our classes. And then 
so that's kind of been what we would normally focus on. And, but then we also run game jams and um, so such as the Gamerella game jam that we did with Black Girls Code. Um, that was for high school students from the ages 16 to 18. We're also talking about um, running something with a new museum, so around um, high school students. So um, it is something we do, but not, I guess, so much on a regular basis anymore. And how does Code Liberation Foundation distinguish itself from other organizations? You mentioned uh, Black Girls Code. There is also Girls Make Games, App Camp for Girls. So there are a lot of groups out there focusing on slightly different aspects of a larger issue. What distinguishes Code Liberation Foundation from those? I guess maybe it's just the maybe maybe it's the audience that when it comes that comes to us that we reach out to. Um, with Black Holes Code, we I guess they're focusing on sort of like programming um, for I guess the uh, maybe like the the more a, a broader programming base and they're specifically for um, uh, African American communities. And so we have that sort of overlap and we work with them on a lot of projects and, you know, we're sort of like friends with um, a lot of the teachers in there. And um, I don't know. I mean, I guess just, I wouldn't say, I just say we're just covering as much ground as we all can. <laughs> There's just so many people to reach. Uh, so I don't know. I kind of never really think about how we are distinguishing ourselves from them. It's just more like the more people out there doing this, the more, um, more people we can get into seats and into classrooms and on, onto the computer. Certainly, geography is one of the things that distinguishes them. It looks like App Camp for Girls, I'm on their website. They have events coming up in uh, Portland, Vancouver, Seattle, Phoenix, etc. Your organization is primarily in New York City, is that correct? Yes. And um, those, those groups are mainly around high school students. And they're very kind of tailored towards like being a camp, like getting together and doing it for a week, um, I think. Girls make games are are also kind of like they have a very intense sort of like weekend workshop sort of situation, which I think um, it's it's actually quite a good good model, and we definitely are thinking about doing you know concentrated session, but we do want to have things that are running throughout the year, and and for it to be about creating a community and having that sort of mentorship and that sort of reg, you know seeing the regular faces and knowing who's in your community and that's an important part of what we do and I can't speak for those organizations in terms of how you know how they community build does the code liberation foundation have any representation outside of new york city for example at events like gdc yeah so we had um, panels at gdc pax amaze indicate games for change tedx open hardware summit um, different games comic con Montreal Games Summit, and we've hosted events at, um, we've hosted workshops actually at Killscreen's 256 conference, and Indicate at Gamerilla and PAX as well. So, um, yeah, we've definitely tried to attend as many of the um, events as possible, and we want to get more involved by curating arcades and um, having more of a women focused um, um, space within these, within these um, events. And we're also um, looking at, so with um, one of our founders being in London, we're looking at how we can create sort of like a, a collaboration in London. And we've been talking to a few people. Every time we go to an event across the country, you know, people want to start a chapter there or something like that. And so that's definitely something we're working towards now, now that we've become a nonprofit. What's the right model that we could then, I don't want to say franchise, but, you know, that we can then kind of like share on and kind of, build grassroots movements in, in different cities. 
So that's definitely something on our radar. And so if anybody yeah, is in, in a different city and wants to talk to us about starting a code liberation there, please, please reach out. Excellent. And there'll be links in the show notes on how to do that. I think it'd be great to see the Code Liberation Foundation in other parts of the country because there is such a need to offer these services to people from a variety of backgrounds and geographic uh, backgrounds, especially. And uh, like I, for example, I can tell you where in Boston to go because that's where I am. I, mm-hmm. In New York City, I can point people to the Code Liberation Foundation. Somebody who's in Fargo or Houston or Boulder, Colorado, I'm off the top of my head, I wouldn't know where to send them. And it'd be great if I could just say, oh, go to the Code Liberation Foundation. They have a camp somewhere near you. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's definitely, that would definitely be something that we would love to do. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's such a, yeah, geography. And I find like with community building, sort of being physically there is such an important thing. Um, and I've kind of been part of like building all kinds of different communities and, and it really does come down to, you know, regular meetings and, and just sort of like having someone else there you can physically talk to. Cause even though you, you can have communications over the web, you, you know, just like one face to face for like half an hour and that, you know, that solidifies things almost immediately. And so and we would love to just meet different people in, in the cities who would love to do that and sort of be able to have them kind of represent um, us. And you know, that would be amazing. Sure. I mean, app- online courses are a powerful tool that have opened up resources to so many people that didn't have them before. And networking opportunities online, such as on Twitter, are a great way to introduce yourself to professionals, create these networking opportunities, and even get jobs. But those are a complement, not a substitute for real-world interaction. And for those who need that local networking, or for those like me who just learn better in a structured classroom, the Code Liberation Foundation serves a very important need. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned that the Code Liberation Foundation classes are not, for example, one-week intensives like some of the other camps offer. What is the structure that it takes? Is it does it follow the academic year where students take a class from September to June and then they graduate? No. So we we do um, either we tend to do classes on a weekly basis, and so if we have a program that um, so for example we ran a C plus plus program that ran for about eight weeks um, last year, and um, also sort of like a JavaScript one that ran for eight weeks, um, and so those would be sort of once per week, and also we feel like with our audience. Um, it is like they all, you know, they would, especially in New York city, you just like have to have a job or like, you know, you're involved in a million things. So having um, intensive periods are, are kind of tricky to actually get people together. Um, unless, you know, it's specifically like a boot camp or something like that. So we want to provide something that people can kind of have just as a supplement to their daily lives, almost like, you know, like going to the gym. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we kind of run those either as like one or two, week workshop three-hour sessions or, um, you know, kind of like a more involved like eight-week program. As we started the discussion, you said that these workshops and classes provide a safe space for women and it eliminates a lot of the pressure that they may experience in other environments. I've had on this podcast representatives of female-friendly social spaces like the Sugar Gamers in Chicago or the Lady Planeswalker Society originally out of Seattle. Their goal is not necessarily to create a group for women, but a group that is safe for women, which means that all genders are welcome as long as they respect that this is a safe space for women. If a young man wanted to take a class at the Code Liberation Foundation, Mm -hmm. 
what would the response be? We've had that happen quite a lot, actually, which is really flattering and um, super sweet. And we have we have had some persistent um, men who have emotively presented that we are also doing some sort of discrimination against men by not allowing them into the class. Um, but generally, we have to really respectfully say no, because we have found that just by virtue of having men in the room, that does create a little bit of a, a threat for women. And we're not... We don't exclude men from our lives at all. We're not um, we're not a women only collective that only kind of associates with women. It's more that in the classroom situation, we just want to carve out a two or three hour space where where in a way gender falls away and we become all you know women just sort of become the individuals that they are and then they become marked by their experiences and expertise and the question of gender sort of doesn't really kind of come up and we do feel that it's hard to you know it's really hard to screen i would find it hard say for a one-off class to be able to screen who you know who of the men coming to the classes would be provide a safe environment you know it becomes i think it becomes a much more difficult thing to um to enforce so yeah and like i said there's a lot of that sort of stereotype threat that we've stereotype threat that we found just by virtue of having men in the room so and there are not many spaces where it can just be women, women only. And we've had found, we found um, the response from participants is that that does make a big difference. So it's not in any way, any form of discrimination on, on our part. It's, it's just sort of, we just find it, it's a kind of like a necessary um, thing. No, I, I totally get that. And I've had Sean Alexander Allen on the show as well. He's in the mm-hmm. city area. Are you, are you familiar yeah. with him? Yeah. Yeah, and he's talked about providing access to programming resources for individuals who are marginalized, not based on their race, at least superficially, but on their socioeconomic status, you know, mm. which, which transcends gender. Yes. And, and so there's certainly a need for the resources of the Code Liberation Foundation for a variety of demographics. I agree that you need to limit your scope in order to be effective. It's just that it's, it's so challenging because you want to help everybody, but... When you try to help everybody, you end up helping nobody. Focus, I think, is something very important for an organization that is, I guess, in a way, involved in the sort of like activism space. Um, because if yeah, if you try to sort of reach out to everybody, then you kind of lose the power of a strong voice. And which is why it's important to have so many different organizations and so many different voices around the same um, issue and the same cause, but then providing. Uh, resources for that particular demographic, whatever it may be. And so what we would like to do is work together with these organizations and kind of, you know, maybe run events together. And, you know, they, in a way, like they can vouch for their members, we vouch for our members, and we can kind of, um, you know, create safe spaces together. But, um, yeah, we found that just sort of having um, a strong narrative around who our audience is and who are the people that we're creating the safe space for um, makes it easier for us to reach a, a wider group of people within that, I guess, narrower band, which really isn't that narrow. <laughs> no, I can imagine that there are, even within your focus area, a lot of people who still need the resources of the Code Liberation Foundation. Do you ever need to turn people away because classes are overflowing? I guess we we sell our tickets through Eventbrite. So um, generally... Um, generally, we kind of like, I guess when we reach the numbers and the ticket sales stop happening, we do have people who approached us, um, you know, if the classes are, f- um, you know, supposedly full. Um, and then we just sort of, you know, invite them to come along anyway, because oftentimes um, 
you know, some people don't show up or um, people sort of at the last minute say, oh, we can't, you know, we, we need to offer up a ticket. So, yeah, generally we feel like we're able to get everybody who wants to come to classes to the classes. That's awesome. And going back on the question of uh, limiting your scope, does the gender restriction apply to the instructors as well? Yes, definitely. Yeah, I guess if there are sort of like specific topics that are very specialized and if there aren't any women that we can find within that, we have talked about potentially having men teach those classes, um, but that sort of hasn't really kind of come up yet. You'll burn that bridge when you come to it, <laughs> as I like to say. Yeah. So the Code Liberation Foundation is about three years old. It's experienced some great growth and exciting developments in that time, including, as you mentioned, in the past year, becoming a 501c3. Mm -hmm. What are some other ways in which the Collaboration Foundation has evolved or changed in that time, perhaps to respond to needs that it previously didn't recognize? So I guess, uh, you know, some of the things that we're about, specifically, we're three years and two months old, so we're kind of little grown up. Um, some of the co-founders are now advocates for us, and they've moved on. One of our founders, as I mentioned, Phoenix Perry, she's in She's um, in London now. And so there have had to just be many changes in that regard. And one of the focuses that we have now is how to evolve um, into a financially stable position. And there will be a lot more of these challenges to come. And also, I think in the last year, it's been interesting. We've had um, sort of as a, I don't want to mention Gamergate too much, but like as a follow-up for that, there have been a lot of um, harassment issues that, towards our members that we faced. And so that has been, that has thrown quite a bit of a challenge towards our organization. And, you know, for us, it's been pushing through issues like that, but, you know, we're sort of like very focused on our mission to, you know, to catalyze digital games and the creating creative technologies by women. And also in a way we've also, you know, looking at the definition of who can come to classes has shifted a little bit and even, with the terminology and language that's being used out in the media, you know, it used to be kind of um, it was like women and women identifying. And now we've kind of expanded it to non-binary femme, you know, girl identifying. Um, and even, ish, you know, whether it's STEM or STEAM or S-T-E-A-A-M, um, is something that we're constantly, we're constantly discussing um, around our agendas and our mission. So, so I would say like, we're fortunate to be in that position to be able to be having these discussions now um, and to know that the directions that we're, we're going in is, is something that's going to be constantly evolving and to be able to have a structure that allows for that. I think that's, you know, that's something that's um, very important to a growing organization. And then also looking at what types of grants that, you know, we'd be able to qualify for and um, strategic partnerships with different corporates or different hardware companies or different software companies are things that we're looking at as well, providing some sort of certification for certain types of programming uh, skill sets or something that we're looking towards as well. So those are, I guess those are some of the things that, that we're, we're looking at right now and kind of putting into place. You know, when I was putting together the outline for this podcast episode, one thing that didn't even cross my mind, which maybe it should have, because it was one of the things that prompted me to launch Polygamer in the first place, was harassment, which you just mm -hmm. mentioned. And I, I, maybe it shouldn't, but even in this day and age, I find it shocking that an organization that's trying to do such good work and such foundational work for such a young demographic as the Code Liberation Foundation would have to put up with that bullshit. <laughs> I mean, what does that even look like when, uh, are you talking about, 
uh, harassing tweets? Do people show up with uh, to create a picket line outside your classes? Uh, no, unfortunately, that hasn't happened. And also, I think it's the function of NYU security system. You just can't probably get up if you have like a large picket sign on your back. And no, we haven't had that physical harassment in that way. I mean, I'm not going to name any names, but our members have definitely faced a lot of online harassment. There's been some doxing and of family members of some of our members. And so that that has been something that in a way has been quite um, quite a difficult thing to deal with because on one hand, it's a very difficult thing for the individuals. And then two, it brings spotlight to the organization in a way that you know other members don't feel comfortable with. And especially with having um, marginalized people in the organization um, who don't have you know financial security, that sort of attention is is really negative and kind of sometimes it, it makes people fearful of being part of an organization that you know maybe has that sort of attention. So we've been really careful to try and isolate from those situations and and be political and be activists through what we do in terms of providing classes and providing that safe space and, but trying not to be political in a way where we are um, directly fire against fire (laughs) in those situations. So yeah, it's definitely something, a, a really delicate situation that we've discussed a lot within internal channels about how we address and, and, you know, what level of, yeah, I guess what level of um, actual speaking out does the organization do uh, apart from its members? It's awful that you have to put up with that, but it shouldn't overshadow the great work that you do. You had mentioned wanting to create arcades at various events that mm-hmm. represent the Code Liberation Foundation. Would that consist of games that have come out of your organization? Yeah, so that would potentially be part of... Um, I think it could. It, it would probably be a mixed sort of effort, and we're also again something that we're discussing. Um, sort of one being a curatorial thing and being able to help promote games that are already out there. Um, we'd definitely be interested in um, commissioning games, and then we would also like our members have. Um, we're, we're kind of interested in creating um, a game that is, you know, made by Code Liberation members ourselves. So um, that would be sort of the mix, I think. Of, an arcade that we'd be putting forward to um, the various events happening next year. Can you cite any success stories that the Code Liberation Foundation has had, either specific developers or games that people could go online and play right now? Yeah, so yeah, we've had a really a lot of successful members, fortunately. So Nina Freeman definitely is one, and you know she's she's quite prominent in um, the social media scene. So I think everyone would know who she is. Um, she's got a her and Jenny. Um, Jenny Sia have both won awards at the IGF this year. And so Nina was one of our co-founders and Jenny took classes and participated in all the game jams. Um, also Kat Small is uh, another, she's our executive director of the group now and she's got a lot of successful games and um, is a programmer at SoundCloud. Caroline Sinders, um, she's um, a UX research um, designer at IBM Watson, Phoenix Perry. Um, she teaches at Goldsmiths University and you know has a whole series of, of really interesting like works and portfolios. So, so another one of our success stories I would say is um, sort of yeah, a young student called Kyra, and she kind of went on to um, get a scholarship to attend Columbia in the computer science department. Um, other sort of like students sort of becoming members like Rochelle. Um, she's also 
um, creating her own like game studio and, and stuff like that. So yeah, a lot of people are kind of like, yeah, in the works and like with this last recent hackathon, quite a few interesting games and um, I would say, I guess, creative plat- internet platforms have sort of come out and we're definitely looking to promote all this. So yeah, I don't, I don't think we're far from having more sort of younger like success stories. What's one of the best ways that somebody listening to this podcast could help the Code Liberation Foundation? Um, I would say just kind of reach out, just either on Twitter or um, through our email, uh, info at codeliberation.org. And I mean, sort of even reaching out to me personally, we're all very responsive on the internet, <laughs> as, as you'll probably tell. So um, that's probably the best way. And also, um, we have a conference coming up in the next month as part of Creative Tech Week, which is also something brand new for New York, which is a really exciting um, endeavor to um, connect, I guess, industry with creative technologists. Um, and that's coming at the end of April towards the first week of May. And so our conference, um, Facets Con, it's a non-conference, um, is at the sort of like end of that, of that conference and on the uh, first weekend of May. So that's something you should definitely come to. And um, almost all our Actually, all our members are going to be there. Um, me and Caroline will be there, and uh, Phoenix Perry will be flying in. And uh, yeah, Cat Small will be there. So just yeah, come and say hi, and um, yeah, definitely love to chat about any ideas or um, events that you've got coming up or classes that we're going to be running over the summer. Awesome. The website for that event is creativetechweek.nyc. There will be a link to that in the show notes, as well as a link to the Code Liberation Foundation, which is codeliberation.org. Adele, before we sign off, I want to do one thing that I've never done on this podcast before. Okay. You are one of the leading voices in the art of gamefulness, which is a fascinating field that that deserves to be more than just a footnote in this podcast. I'd love to have you back on on a future episode to discuss just that. Would you accept that invitation? Oh, my goodness. Uh, Yeah, sure. That would be great. (laughs) Fantastic. I mean, I, I was thinking about squeezing it in here, but we just wouldn't be able to do it justice. And I think that if we really get into it, we can do a whole show just on that topic. Yeah, I would love that. I yeah, I feel very strongly about that topic, and I yeah, I love it so much. Everything everything I make sort of becomes a game or a playful thing. So uh, yeah, definitely lots to talk about. Wonderful. So subscribers to Polygamer can look forward to hearing more of Adele later in this calendar year. In the meantime, thank you so much for talking about Code Liberation Foundation. I've really enjoyed finally checking this organization off my list and having somebody on the show. It's been great learning more about the awesome work you do in New York City. Thank you so much, Ken, for having us. And um, yeah, I'm yeah, really excited to have all the chats with you. And um, anybody else listening to this podcast, please get, get in touch. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net.